I'm extremely excited and happy to begin a series this morning on the subject of joy. Philippians 4 verse 4 tells us, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Twice within one verse, we are given the same command for emphasis, and note that it's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. So joy in that sense is not optional. Now it's optional in that we can choose happy, we can choose joy, we can choose where we find joy, but if we're going to be identified as a Christian, as belonging to Christ, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The proof that we have the Spirit in our life, the proof that we belong to Jesus is joy. And joyless Christians have done a great disservice to Christianity. They are an assault on the gospel, which is good news, not bad news. Whenever we walk around like Eeyore trying to convince people the joy of the Lord is my, that's not convincing. That's not attractive. And this concept that Christians used to have that smiling or laughing or enjoying anything or having any pleasure was sinful or worldly or wrong, not attractive. And so C.S. Lewis he writes, he says, joy, he says um, joy is a serious business of heaven. And that's why we find a multitude of commandments on the subject of joy. In fact, some would argue that the command to rejoice in the teaching on joy is as prevalent as any teaching in the entire Bible. In fact, we find it 19 times in the book of Philippians alone, four chapters. And so if you want joy, if you want more joy, if you want real joy, if you want full joy, would encourage you to study and apply the book of Philippians into your life. And that's what we intend to do over the course of this series. Finding joy. Sadly, most people don't find it. Two-thirds of Americans admit they are unhappy. And we want to distinguish between sometimes our worldly concepts or the definition of happiness. Think about the word happiness, hap, which means chance or luck. It's dependent upon the circumstance. And that's why our happiness often is like a roller coaster. We're happy and unhappy. We want to think of joy as something deeper and richer and fuller and more permanent and more independent that roots us and grounds us no matter what the happenstance is at the surface. And that type of joy is not found by direct selfish pursuit. And that's why most people won't find it. It's found indirectly by directly pursuing God and other people. It's a byproduct of that pursuit. And so if you wanted a thesis statement, something to remember, the concept we're covering in this first study, joy comes when you put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. I believe one of the thematic statements made in the book of Philippians is in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul writes, let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ. And he goes on in depth to explain a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, we're selflessly united based on who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Striving together, not face to face. 
constant emphasis, unity, even to the Philippians, often referred to as a love letter because of the affection he had for them. They were a great congregation. And even so, we read in chapter 4 about a conflict that they were working to resolve between two women. Not striving face to face. The theme of this book is not only joy, we think of it as the epistle of joy, but also fellowship and unity. And I think those things are related. Striving together, side by side, for a common goal, a common cause, a common purpose for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on in chapter 2, if there be, there's consolation, encouragement, love, fellowship, bows and mercies. If these things exist in Christ, and that's not an uncertain if, it's a factual condition. Another word we might use, since. Or because, since you belong to Jesus, since you belong to each other, since agape love that gives is the catalyst and the motivation, be united, fulfill my joy through unity. If these things exist in Christ, and they do, if, then he goes on to explain how we can have unity and fellowship and peace with God and each other, and therefore rejoice in the Lord together. And so he continues in verse 3, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory. You want to emphasize the word nothing. That's a very comprehensive word. There's a good rule of thumb. Don't assume your time, your life, your family, your money, your soul is more valuable and important than your neighbor's. When you think about the things that rob us of joy and disturb our peace, the ultimate cause of that is sin. And what's the ultimate cause of sin? If you do the root cause and you trace it back to its origin and source, you'll find pride and selfishness nearly every time. And that's why C.S. Lewis also writes, pride is the chief cause of misery in every family and nation since the world began. He essentially is echoing what James taught in James chapter 3. In our relationship, just you and me, one-on-one, our relationship, if we are both esteeming self, conflict is inevitable. And so Philippians chapter 2 gives us the key to good, healthy relationships. You know what he says essentially in our vernacular? Get over yourself. (laughs) Don't be arrogant and selfish. Be humble and kind. Count others better than yourself. Esteem others. Count others more significant than yourself. You think, how is that impossible? Somebody isn't always more significant or better than me in every way. Paul was an apostle who wrote this. Jesus esteemed us more significant than himself. That's not true. (laughs) We're not more significant than Jesus. Yet that's what he did. And so the emphasis is not on what someone is. The emphasis is on what you count and esteem them to be. And so the question becomes, will we count others worthy of our time, our concern, and our love? Similar concept Paul writes about to the Romans. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. He goes on to say, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be empathetic. Be of the same mind. There's the unity. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Lower yourself. Be not wise in your own conceits. In relationships, as much as life within you, do your part to live peaceably with all men. Overcome evil with good. And we see here, like we see in Galatians 5, in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, joy. Peace. 
We'll see in Philippians chapter 4 this strong correlation and connection between joy and peace. And I believe peace in relationships is critical to joy, starting at home. Study after study consistently ranks good relationships as a top priority to having joy and being happy in life. And I would contend that it's hard to find joy anywhere if you don't have joy in your home. The Bible says rejoice in the wife of your youth. And studies show if there's not rejoicing, if there's not pleasure and joy in that relationship, it creates a thirst to go find that joy outside of the home. Children are at heritage of the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Find joy in your home. Find joy in your children. Will you play with me? Count them significant. Esteem your children. Children, as we think about each member of the family doing it, your part to bring joy into the home and to cause rejoicing in the home and contributing to that. The Bible says a wise child brings their parents great rejoicing. And it's tragic that so many homes, Christian homes, are void of rejoicing. And so as we think about the importance of peace in relationships as it relates to having joy, guard attitudes that prevent esteeming others. And I want to tell you that's something I really, really struggle with. I will confess that. When you look at somebody as ignorant, arrogant, belligerent, selfish, you are going to have a hard time esteeming them, especially more significant than yourself. And so again, the emphasis is not on what someone is. They might be all of those things. They might be acting in all of those ways. But it's what you choose to esteem them to be. Pray for them, which helps your attitude. Tell them you're praying for them. Paul did that. Philippians 1, I'm praying for you. Make someone feel esteemed and special. Give them a compliment. Make them feel valued. And the key in this, the heart of that is lowliness of mind. The link... The transition between don't be selfish, don't esteem self to esteeming others is lowliness of mind. Be willing to accept a lower place. And the motivation for that, he goes on to say, is the cross, the grace that humbles us and enables us. If you know yourself and you know your God, you will be humbled. And that affects how we view and how we treat people. Lowliness is the opposite of entitlement. Entitlement says, you owe me. Humility says, I owe God and others. And why do we live with this sense of humble debt towards God and others? Because God indebted himself to me when he owed me absolutely nothing. Because Jesus esteemed me as worthy when I was unworthy, as significant even though I am very insignificant. And think about this, you are the most like Satan when you are proud and selfish. And you are the most like Jesus whenever you are humble and selfless. Pride is the quickest way to get God and others against you. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 5. He says, submit to each other. All of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. If you want the grace of God in your life, humble yourself. If you want the resistance of God in your life, be proud. And as you study the context of 1 Peter, we're gonna come back to 1 Peter as we talk about, as we talk about being humble and we talk about facing adversity. You know what he says when he talks about facing adversity and opposition? Submit. Submit to God. 
Jesus' example. Submit to the governor. Submit to the government. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wife. Submit to the elders. Elders, submit to the chief shepherd. His, his solution to adversity, living in the world, not of the world, be holy as I am holy, as he is holy, submit. A refusal to submit, a refusal to, to uh, living with this perspective that nobody's going to tell me what to do is not going to make your life better. It's not going to make your marriage better. Submit to each other. Ultimately, submit to each other. This mutual submission and service for mutual edification. How do we submit to each other? By placing yourself in obligation to serve one another. Philippians chapter 2. Focusing on responsibilities towards others and towards God. Being clothed with humility. How would our lives be different? What would that look like? And think about a lot of stories in battle where people made the ultimate act of service towards their fellow man. 9-11, inspiring stories of people who gave their life for others and service to others. Think about a story from a few weeks or months ago about a young boy, six-year-old boy, who saved his four-year-old brother from a German shepherd attack. And I thought about putting that picture up here, but it truthfully was too graphic. <laughs> you can go look at that on your own before and after. But you know what he said? After two hours of surgery and 90 stitches, if somebody had to die, I thought it should be me. That's what we're talking about. The ultimate, most infinitely graphic picture of that is Christ on a cross. Bernard Rimland did a study where he asked people to list the 10 people they knew best and then say whether they were happy or unhappy and then go back through the list and say, are they selfish or unselfish? Selfish, preoccupied with their resources and their time, not willing to inconvenience themselves. Every person they just listed as happy was also described as unselfish. And so you know what his conclusion of that study was? People who pursue happiness, selfish pursuit, by making themselves happy, are far less likely to be happy than those who pursue the happiness of others. That's exactly what we're talking about this morning, finding joy and service. Think about the Beatitudes. We're going to talk a lot about these and connect each study to Jesus' teaching on happiness. Be happy. How to be happy. How to have the full joy, the lasting joy. Four of the Beatitudes relate to our subject this morning. And there's this paradox throughout them. You will not find joy the way the world seeks it, the way that makes sense. It's exactly the opposite place you would look. You want to have joy, you want to be happy, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. That person who recognizes their spiritual poverty before God, that invites the grace of God into their life instead of the resistance of God into their life, that sees their self before God, that will pursue righteousness through his righteousness, that's the kind of person who's going to be in my kingdom and be blessed. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Someone says it sounds like the people inheriting the earth are the opposite of meek. <laughs> On the backs of other people, you will not enjoy this earth and the new earth without being humane, benevolent, kind, and forgiving. That's the truth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The joy of the forgiveness of God as we forgive other people. Not just that joy, but the joy of letting go, of bitterness, 
of ulcers. As we're merciful towards others, it invites others to be merciful towards us and it brings joy into your life. Blessed are the peacemakers. We mentioned the connection between joy and peace. Being a person that pursues peace and unity with others instead of division will bring joy to your life. And so as we think about the greatest commands, Romans 13, similar context to what Paul described in, or Peter described in 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit. That's the solution. Submit. Exact opposite of what we submit to others, serve others, and it'll make your life better. Pay your taxes. And then he says, owe no man anything but to love one another. Give everyone their dues. Pay what you owe in service to other people, and you will always owe love. You will never pay that debt back. Love for God and love for other people. And that fulfills the law. The law is summarized and fulfilled in that. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. He goes on to say in the next chapter, don't destroy the work of Christ, the one for whom Christ died. Jesus said, be wise as serpents and humble as doves. <laughs> I get that backwards a lot. <laughs> I'm about as wise as a dove and about as harmless as a snake sometimes. 1 Corinthians 10, similar con concept. Looks like I'm froze up here. 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about making decisions, maybe not black and white, Matters of liberty and judgment, not necessarily right or wrong, but making the best decision. That's the challenge for Christians. What's excellent, Philippians chapter 1. And he said, all things are lawful, but not everything's expedient. Not everything's helpful. So he says, I'm going to seek what's best for other people. That's how I make the best decision. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I don't seek my own advantage, but that of many, that they may... Be saved. You know one of the most beautiful, powerful, attractive things the church has done for 2,000 years is be willing to give up our rights, our privilege, our life for other people. 1 Corinthians 13, the characteristics of agape love. Every one of them virtually connect back to Philippians chapter 2. Love isn't proud. Love doesn't boast. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is patient and kind. The greatest commands, love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. And what was the follow-up question? Who's my neighbor? <laughs> and what did Jesus say? Told the story of the Good Samaritan. Jason mentioned what a Samaritan was last Sunday. If you study that, you can appreciate how much this would have stung. <laughs> Essentially, how convicting it is when the heathen show more concern for others than us religious folk do. And it begs the question, am I the one asking what will happen to me if I stop? Or am I the one asking what will happen to them if I don't stop? Matthew 7, 12, the golden rule, if you look at this context, the previous verses, Jesus essentially is saying because God has been gracious and generous towards you, you be gracious and generous towards other people. Somebody says, why didn't he say treat others the way they want to be treated? That would seem like a better rule. Well, maybe they don't have a biblical, godly worldview, and their definition of what they need and what love is might not be. He's operating under the assumption that we have a biblical, godly perspective. And he says, whatever. That's a comprehensive word. Not limited. Whatever you wish means not just treat others the way they've treated you. Think bigger than that. 
Go the extra mile. Dream big. Whatever you wish. Others, not just your family, not just your friends. That includes friend and foe alike. And I'm convinced that a violation of this principle, of this rule, and the greatest commands is one of the most basic causes of unhappiness and misery and illness and depression in the world. And so Paul goes on to give examples and illustrations of verse 4 people in practice. The ultimate example is Jesus. And we're going to talk about him some more in a moment. I just want to point out if Jesus wasn't exempted from putting the interest of others above himself, we aren't exempted either. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The example of Timothy. He said, I'm sending Timothy that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. How sad. For they all seek their own interest, not the things of Jesus. Why would he say the things of Jesus instead of the things of others? The implication is that when we serve Jesus, we serve other people. Matthew 25, Jesus said, whenever you give a cup of water in my name, you give it to me. So the implication is when we serve others, we are serving Jesus because that is the interest of others. Leonard Bernstein, a famous conductor in the New York Symphony, was asked one time, what's the hardest instrument to play? You know what he said? Second fiddle. Think about the example of Epaphroditus. Paul said, I'm sending Epaphroditus to you You heard that he was sick, and he was sick nine to death. He said, I'm sending him to you so you won't be worried anymore. He's worried about you. I sent him to you that you may rejoice. Think about this man. He was worried that they were worried about him. He was nearing to death. You know what he was worried about? Not himself, other people. What a contrast. When we're sick, we want the whole world to know it, (laughs) especially us guys, right? We'll die for you, but if we catch a cold, we're going to act like we're going to die. I was, I felt near nine to death on a trip to India one time. I want to tell you, I was not concerned about people being concerned for me back home. My biggest concern is, is there enough Gatorade and crackers? And notice, ministry is not always 50-50. That's the nature of ministry. It's usually not 50-50. He was the one that risked his life, almost died, traveled 700 miles, And notice the example of Paul. Paul says, I sent him to you for your joy. Even though he's been useful to me and helpful to me as I sit in prison, I'm sending him to you for your joy. He sacrificed his joy for the comforts of others. Find joy in making others joyful. We were created to find joy in including others in our joy. That's the lesson Solomon learned the hard way in the book of Ecclesiastes. Philippians 2 17, Paul says, And if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service or the altar of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Think about what he said in chapter 1. He said, I'm praying for you, and that gives me joy. He said, My joy is found in the proclamation of the gospel. That's where I get my joy. For the benefit of the lost, for the benefit of the saved. He said, My chains have emboldened Christians to speak out. 
He said, all these things that have happened to me, and you can read about what all he went through, he said, it's okay, it's good. Don't be discouraged. This has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I might be incarcerated, but the gospel is not incarcerated, and I rejoice. He said, even people who are preaching out of selfish ambition, who are competing with me, evidently they are preaching the right message in contrast to Galatians 1, but from the wrong motive. He said, you know what? It's not about me. As long as people are hearing and responding to the true gospel, I will rejoice. And he goes on to say in chapter one, I don't even know what to wish for. To die, which is far better for me, or to live longer for you, for more fruit, to take more people to heaven. You are my joy and crown. You are the wreath that I ran the race, that I fought the good fight. Find joy in evangelism. John writes in 3 John 4, there is no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. No greater joy in life than to share Jesus with people. That's the life. And notice even the way Paul begins and ends his letters and epistles. He begins with saying, greet all the saints. Calls people by name. I notice you. You matter. You exist. I count you as significant. And so when we walk in the room, do we announce our presence? Or do we announce others' presence? I see you. And you matter. The example of the Philippians, he said, you gave time and time again. When no one else did, you did. And he said, even the gifts you're giving to me, it's not about me, it's about you. That it may abound to your account, an odor of a sweet smell, sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. He used the Philippians as to prod the Corinthians to give to those in need in Judea. And notice what he says about them. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave beyond their needs, beyond their means, begging to share in the relief of the saints. In severe tests, severe affliction, extreme poverty, joy that's found not in your bank, but in your heart. Their riches were in their disposition to give to others. And it's this joy that we have in Christ that has and must overflow to touch and bless the lives of other people. It's better or more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus said. So he says that's the most disbelieved verse in the Bible, maybe. Maybe one of the most not applied or experienced. But I think we do believe it. If you have children, you give, don't you? If you have grandchildren, you really give. <laughs> Why? Because you have discovered the joy of giving. John Rockefeller at 53 was the world's only billionaire, richest man in the world. But he looked like a mummy, his hair fell out. His stomach was so bad, all he could do was eat crackers and milk. People hated him. He was like Scrooge. Couldn't sleep. One night, he had this epiphany. I can't take it with me. And he got busy giving. Still blesses us today. All these discoveries that were made because he gave. Newspapers had obituaries on file ready for his death. He didn't die at 53. didn't die at 63. He lived in 98. 
And studies after studies show that you are happier when you give and you spend on others instead of spending on yourself. That you are more likely to live longer with less stress when you give. And the key is verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord. When you commit your heart, your soul, everything else will follow. So how is this possible? How can I be a verse 4 person? That's one of the hardest verses in the entire Bible. Right there. I want to mention how it's possible, and we're going to explore these truths in greater detail later. I just want to mention them. Contentment in Christ. If we believe that all of our joy is found in Jesus and we have that, we don't need anything, we can get busy focusing on the needs and interests of others. That conviction frees us to live for Jesus and live for other people. Without that conviction, we will use people to fill the void in our life. Short-term loss for long-term gain. Lose your life to find it. Give up your life to save it. That's what Jesus did. Gave his life in the short term for long-term gain. When you humble yourself to serve others, there will be loss in the short term. But look to the long-term gain. And ultimately, the example and exaltation of Christ that we want to consider for a few minutes. Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, because the attitude determines the actions. Have this mind that will produce edification and unity, because if my outlook is selfish, the outcome will be divisive and destructive. Have this attitude towards others that Jesus had, one of compassion, one of concern for the greater good. When we aren't His hands, it's because we don't have His mind. Do what He did by thinking like He did. WWJD, what is that? What did Jesus do? Because we can lose sight of the spirit, the heart, the soul of what it really means to be a Christian. If I'm going to be a verse 4 person, I have to appreciate verses 5 through 8. And so he says, Existing in the form of God, thought not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You know, this controversy on the nature of Christ. Is he God? Just a man? Both? This was a central passage in that controversy and answering that debate. What did Jesus empty himself of? Been very controversial. Being in the form of God, what does that mean? Form is not the Greek word for just an external appearance, but this word in the Greek literally means the essence, the core of who Jesus is and always has been is God. Being is a present active participle in the Greek, which means he's always been and he still continues today to be God. So what does form of God, being the form of God, equality with God, how does that relate to grasp? Was he grasping for something he didn't have? Or does it mean being willing to let go of something he had? Well, the very next word, this is one word, emptied himself, poured himself out, gives us the answer. You don't empty yourself of something you don't have. And so the concept is he didn't hold on too tight to the glory, to the privileges he has and always has, as God. That's the immediate context. As we zoom out to the remote context, verse after verse, in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the express image of his person, the radiance of God's glory. That's why they killed him, because he made that abundantly clear. And so he didn't empty himself of deity, he emptied himself of the rights and privileges of deity, of what stood between him and the cross. He let go of power, position, privilege to embrace vulnerability, humility, 
to become a man, to position himself with us for our privilege. He didn't count his authority or status as God as something to be exploited for personal benefit. The decision wasn't to empty himself of deity, but rather it was an incarnation of what it really means to be divine. So form of God took on form of man. What does likeness of men mean? Does that mean he wasn't really a man? Romans 8, God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Hebrews says, in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. The emphasis is not distancing Jesus from humanity. He He became a man, but to distance himself from sin. He experienced human pain and suffering, blood, sweat, and tears. He taught with a human voice. He healed with a human touch. He was in human lives and human homes. He bled human blood. He died a human death. He chose to be Jesus. And that's so compelling. John 13, one of the examples of this humbling as a servant. Disciples are fighting over who's the best, who's the greatest. So I teach him that lesson. We're told what's on Jesus' mind this night. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to do what he's doing right now. He's going to serve. We're also told that he knew all things were delivered into his hand. And what we go on to read right after that, all things, all power, all, he got up, put a towel around his waist, and he proceeded to wash dirty feet, including the feet of Judas. Who but God, who but Jesus would connect all things delivered into his hand to get up and serve? Peter says, you're not washing my feet. (laughs) Never. Humble enough to realize he didn't deserve this, proud enough to dictate to his master. This is not greatness. This is not deity. This is beneath you. This is embarrassing. Get up. And Jesus says, you need your view of God and greatness reworked. When he would do a miracle, they saw the greatness of God. You know what he would say? I'm going to go to the cross. You ain't seen nothing yet. And Jesus says, if you don't embrace and adopt this spirit of humility and service, you have no part with me. God is not unlike himself when he stoops to serve. That's an eternal trait of the Godhead. And so he says, you should do, I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. What else did he do? He humbled himself. He emptied himself to be humbled and to become obedient. There's a connection between humility, submission we mentioned earlier, and obedience. Now I want us to notice as we consider his prayer in the garden, we don't submit when it's what we feel like doing, right? It's not really when you submit. If you have kids, you know that. (laughs) You don't submit when you go get a piece of candy, Go watch a movie. When I don't want, I don't like, I don't think, that's when you submit. And notice, Paul summed up his life between the incarnation and the crucifixion. His life was summed up in one word. Obedient. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And death is mentioned twice for emphasis to emphasize he didn't just lower himself and humble himself to be a man, to be a slave, 
to die, but even the death of the cross. He went as low as you can go. How low can you go? Because that's the whole point of this passage, to call us to the greatest sacrifice. The love of Christ constrains us. He died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. The example of Jesus to help and empower us to be humble servants for other people's interest at much cost and risk to ourselves, just like it cost Jesus his very life. The mind that moved from infinite heights to infinite depths, from heaven to Hades, Jesus emptied self to be united with us. And that's the mindset we are to have as we interact with and relate to each other. Notice what he says in conclusion. Wherefore, with the word therefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Look to the reward. We talked about that. Short-term loss for long-term gain. We're commanded to do that. Look to the reward. Jesus did that. We think that's the wrong motive. Not if you're interested in including others in the reward, including others in the joy, but we're told to look to the reward. Jesus did that for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. True humility ends in glory. You've got to give up glory like Jesus to gain glory. The more you give the more you get, the more you lose, the more you gain, the more you pour yourself out, the fuller you'll be. It's that paradox we see in the Beatitudes and throughout this pursuit of joy. <laughs> the way down is up, the way up is down. So therefore, now for us, therefore, my beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a deep hermeneutical principle I wanna share. Therefore, Look before, therefore means it's there for a reason. And so therefore work out your salvation, why? Because Jesus was highly exalted. There's a therefore there. So look back from verse nine to verses five through eight. This is why. Because Jesus was exalted when he humbled himself to serve God and serve others. You do the same and bring your salvation to its ultimate fulfillment in your life. Let this exaltation sustain you in the humbling. Look to the reward. So he says, what about verse 13? That sounds kind of Calvinistic. God working in you to will and to do. Think about when your child follows your instructions, the father's will is working in that child as they obey what the father has taught them to do. The influence of the father through the word is working in you to will and to do. And it starts with the will. You're not going to do, definitely not for the right motives, but long-term, you're not going to do without the will. What do you will to do this morning? You will become a Christian? Confess Jesus, your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? You can do that willingly now. Or as we read earlier, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Most will wait till it's too late. If you want an ascension, you've got to descend with him be buried with him in baptism and he will exalt you, resurrect you to walk in newness of life. And you can go on your way rejoicing just like those throughout the book of Acts after you believe, repent, and are baptized. Maybe you're here and you need a change of will. That's repentance. Change of will so you can do his good pleasure. Maybe you need to humble yourself. Be a servant. Put the needs and interests of others before your own. Find joy in serving other people. If you have a spiritual need this morning, 
Jesus says, come unto me. I'm meek and lowly, and that's great news, exactly what we've been talking about this morning. Come be served so you can serve. Come find joy in me so you can find joy in serving other people. And if you're seeking that full joy, if you're seeking lasting joy, the Lord invites you to come and take it as we stand and sing together.